You're listening to Extra Textual. This is a show where we talk about an idea, concept, theme, trend, and relate it to some kind of media like film, TV, video games, books, music, and hopefully discover something about ourselves or our culture along the way. Thanks for listening. Hey, this is Eli Steenlidge. We're coming to you from Madison, Wisconsin. And with me today is... Jeremy Holliday. Uh, Mikey Kruger won't be on the show this week. He's a little under the weather, so his voice wasn't too good. Um, but he'll be back next time. Yeah, he claims to have had two colds at the same time. Yeah, I was a little suspicious. I don't know how that works. Isn't it all one cold? I don't know. Maybe I don't one know. on the nose, one on the ears, who knows? Sounds good. Sounds good. But it's bad. That's yeah. all we know. So thanks for joining us uh, for this episode. Um, today we're kind of picking our topic in contrast to our first episode on nostalgia. Uh, today we're talking about originality in film. Uh, so this is kind of looking at the other side of things from kind of self-referential and copying or mimicking kind of past ideas or rebooting. And we're kind of talking about what does it look like to be original. Um, so if you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to our first one. Um, and you'll kind of understand it a little bit more. So with originality, uh, we're going to have a little bit different format this week we're going to try out. Uh, I'm going to kind of explain an aspect of originality that uh, has really struck me, is interesting to me, and affected my uh, movie experience, my movie journey, and uh, also some of my filmmaking. And then Jeremy's going to um, talk about kind of an aspect that's affected him yeah. as well. So uh, we'll kind of discuss each of the films we're, we're going over, but we're going to mention a few and talk about those. And in general, with originality, we were trying mm-hmm. to find something that was uh, kind of unlike anything else, you know, like mm-hmm. a, a film or an aspect of a film that just stands out. Yeah. You know, you, you think about it back in your mind when you first saw it or when you're remembering it, and there's there's almost no comparison. Mm-hmm. You know, which is not to say, as, as we go through the episode, you'll see, which is not to say that it doesn't, maybe borrow from other things or use other things, but it, it, it combines things or comes up with new stuff for sort of like a singular kind of experience. Right. And I, I think we want to acknowledge that when we say originality, we know that like nothing is fully original and Indeed. came out of the ether and it was its own thing um, and referencing other. But I think that's why we're approaching this as what personally has affected us as something original. And uh, that may have... St- may strike other people in a different way. And even the films we talk about um, may have not been that original to either of us. Um, but it's it's affected our sort of film journey. Indeed. Yeah. And so we'll have our discussion of originality. Mm-hmm. We'll do some uh, some of our standard segments at the end. What are we watching mm-hmm. with our kids? What's What are we watching on streaming? Which we will maybe come up with clever titles for yeah, at some point. Maybe just what are we playing? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, but uh, we'll do that. Um, so let's hear it, Eli. Yeah, well, I just wanted to mention, is there anything else about uh, originality, about how you approached it in general? And we can kind of introduce our aspects of it, but like, how did you think about originality when we talk about original film? Okay. Oh, well, I mean, at first I, well, so I used to be, excuse me, an academic, so when I wanted to like do research and find mm-hmm. out like, when was the first time when this thing was done? Mm-hmm. When was the first time when this style was done? Yeah, I kind of had the um, same first which I didn't do, um, and I sort of gave myself license to go back and say, you know, of the films that I've watched in my 
viewing of film, you know, as mm-hmm. a as a viewer, like yeah. what are some moments or films or filmmakers or styles that sort of really stuck out? Mm-hmm. Um, and I found that um, something that comes up between Eli and I often is Eli focuses a lot on visuals. That's something that he yeah. really values. Um, yeah. Me, it's often more about a story that like the pace of the narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, there's sometimes like uh, the sound that really you know how things sound stuff that's really important to me. And so the things that I looked at were. Um, which you'll see in a little bit are you know like what story did I did I, I I look at in a film that just seemed to be totally unique or have some elements that I just if I scan sideways in my yeah. life kind of you know I wasn't really able to find anything else like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I think that was similar for me the way I approached it, and uh, you know, once I started looking at this, I also kind of picked a few films that. Um, you know, have made an impact on me and my thinking on film and filmmaking. But then I started to think more and I was like, oh, well, what about Wong Kar Wai films? I didn't, that was a really big thing for me um, when I discovered those. But I had to kind of like temper myself and say, hey, I'm sure you'll hear me talk about, you know, In the Mood for Love at some other point um, uh, with that and that. So I'm, I'm kind of sticking with the ones that first kind of struck me and came to mind. Um, I also approached it in a way that that kind of had more of a a personal feel to it and was something that I'd never seen before so I kind of think of that a lot like like we said it doesn't necessarily mean that it's the most original idea ever or hasn't been done um but like think of it as like a voice so uh maybe like when you're reading a book you know you read a certain book and you think wow I've never really heard it describe this way or in this kind of voice um so i kind of think of that as like a filmic voice that i hadn't seen before um and i or that i hadn't experienced the world in that way and i really enjoy that some people may not like that i think maybe some general audiences kind of want to see what they're used to but for me i want to see something that i have never seen before um you gotta mention that uh great so let's jump into um topics so like jeremy mentioned um I'm kind of exploring the visual side of things uh, with the films I picked. Uh, The first film I want to talk about is The Matrix. So this film (laughs) I encountered, um, I think, as a senior in high school, sort of towards the end. And the way that I came across it was, I think I was just watching TV, watching whatever, and um, I think I even just didn't even catch the whole 30-second commercial that I saw for it. This is the first thing I heard about it. I don't know if people remember, but this was not like a big film that people were talking about when it came out. It was a very small film. It was not like kind of the blockbustery um, type trilogy that we think of now. Um, it was pretty unknown. So I caught it, and I think, you know, there was things like... Uh, of course, what we kind of know is like bullet time where he kind of leans back and it slows down and the bullet kind of skims by him and we see it moving through the air. Um, so like that is kind of a cliche, which I'll talk about more. But um, at the time, there was nothing like that. Uh, seeing him sort of leap across buildings in this very kind of flashy style um, had not really been seen before. The way the helicopters crashed into the side of the building, and we see this ripple through the windows. Um, just really unique things that I would just made me say, like, what is that? Um, and, you know, from that commercial, I didn't get an idea of the story, which is also very kind of in-depth and um, a little bit complicated. So all of that really drew me in. 
um, to it. So it made me just think, I, you know, you know, there wasn't the internet at that time where you could just go and like yeah, look yeah. up what well, is this film or like let me look at the trailers for it. Like right. that really was, wasn't online. I mean, and I mean, for me, like, well, I mean, the the Matrix was the first film that I watched on DVD. Oh, okay. You know, like yeah, yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine had it. and He's like, we watched the it on DVD. my computer, and yeah. I'm like. That's crazy, Tom. Right. You know, <laughs> um, you know. So I think I watched it first on somebody's laptop. Maybe yeah. it was actually at their house. But yeah. um, you know, I had people were like, "Oh my gosh, you got to see the Matrix. It's awesome." Yeah. And I'm like, "Cool. What's it about?" And it's like, I can't really tell you. It's like, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think after I watched it, um, it was one of the first times that I was like, "I, I got to find out how they made that." Right. Right. Um, you know, and then even you know years later, like seeing the like those elaborate circular series of mm-hmm. still still cameras that they made to do right, that how they did it yeah um there was just also for me like um like in the age of early cgi mm-hmm. um everything in that film looked absolutely real right you know i mean and, the, clean, and it, yeah. it's, it's a little bit you know i mean it's a little bit uh you know there's crunch and there's some mm-hmm. filters applied so that the the colors aren't quite right and yeah. there's there's definitely some doctoring but it's through the whole film right and certainly everything in the matrix Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, you know, like it, it visually, like every every element of the every time people are on screen, it just it it's just telling all this interesting story, and it looks right. so real. Yeah. In a way, I was like, I I just you know, it was like not speaking for the yeah the following folks, yeah, right. You know, it was almost it was like looking at um you know like watching the Olympics, like mm-hmm. how did they how did do, do that? that? You know, right. in addition to like liking the story and mm-hmm. the cool moves that they did and all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there were aspects of, like, the action, which was just so fluid and, you know, uh, because he could sort of download, you know, learning kung fu or whatever, that were just so fast-paced and um, uh, just sort of fit perfectly together that you we hadn't really seen much before, I think. It was much normally more rugged, and he was just sort of, like, perfect at all this stuff. Yeah. Um, and very quick action. Uh, I will say... I, was sort of a fan of like um, the Blade movie. Did you see that? The first Blade. The first movie? Blade movie. First Blade movie is good. Right. Blade two and Blade Trinity. I can't. Yeah, defend. we won't talk about. It. But the first Blade movie solid. Blade, first Blade movie is solid, and I did after going back realize there are some kind of actiony elements that I think. Yeah. Um, led before the Matrix came out because that came yeah. out a little bit earlier. Um, but anyways, I think it was the first to kind of do those things, and like I said. You know, the kind of bullet time slowed down. I mean, we still see that in superhero movies. I think it was in one of the Marvel movies recently. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it they... utterly defined a whole new right. way of doing slow mm-hmm. motion. Yeah. And we take it for granted now, I think. Um, one of the things that killed me was uh, we had a couple um, young, new employees at work, and I overheard them talking and uh, they were both like early twenty somethings, if that. Is this like a, about like how we're old now? Yeah, is that what's going on now? Or you know, the film is old. And <laughs> so they were talking about kind of films, and then uh, they said, "Oh, uh, they said, oh, I've never seen The Matrix." One of them said, and "They said, oh, you have to see that." And they're like, "Yeah, I don't really like those old special effects. They don't look good." And I was just kind of like, "What?" And then another person said, "Yeah, I don't really like watching old films either." It's like, oh my goodness, what? This is like milestone. You <laughs> have to films? see this. Yeah. yeah. And also that like they consider that an old film. Um, so I think to appreciate it on that different level. Um, anyway, also, I mean, yeah. about bullet time too, like for me, like it wasn't just that they did bullet time, mm-hmm. but it was like narratively meaningful. Right. And like interesting. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I mean, when we, the first time we see it, like we don't really know what's happening. 
Yeah. You know, and, and, and it's like we have to slow down to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, because there have been other, like, there are certainly other films, even at the same time, that have, like, interesting, you know, convoluted special effects. Right. But nothing was nearly, nothing was, as, as I feel like, as engaging or interesting as watching, yeah. you know, Neo bend over backwards to dodge those bullets. Right. And it related to, like, you're right, to his character and what's happening because he could actually understand what was happening and sort of understand the world in that slowed down mode to miss that so it, it did make narrative sense um to it and i mean just on another element like it all just was things that i was interested in kind of had the hacker ideas artificial intelligence yeah. um all that pulled together but i think after seeing the following matrix movies and i think they progressively kind of got worse and sloppy i kind of call it like the third one sloppy like the first one they it just felt like every shot was planned perfectly. I mean, it, it, it's a near-perfect film. Right. You know, like I mean, it's they, like almost like Shaun of the Dead. I mean, they obviously um, storyboarded it very closely, yeah. and we're probably thinking about it longer than the other ones, but yeah, everything just fit really nicely. Interesting composed shots, and by the third one, it just felt like a standard sci-fi battle movie of things like hitting each other. Robots and guns. Yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, there's no... Things. We have the Merovingian in there and a whole bunch of other... Yeah. Um... So that's kind of a different that's a conversation. Different podcast. But um, yeah, so I think that one is just kind of has this perfectness. I saw it on opening day and, you know, just felt like I was like a apostle of this movie, like telling people like, you have to see it. And again, like people didn't, weren't expecting this to be anything. Um, also, Keanu Reeves, Reeves was not like a big deal at that point <laughs> anymore after, this is well after uh, Bill and Ted's. On the bus. Right. <laughs> uh, so, but and I remember it just became like a cultural from phenomenon after that. Yeah. Um, as people started to see it uh, and think about it. So, uh, I think, I don't know that that is particularly going to be influential in my actual filmmaking. But I think the concept of the way that they thought about composing their shots, what was in the foreground, the background, um, how things just flowed. I mean, the editing just seemed perfect. And, yeah, well, um, I mean, the, thing the timing, that, yeah. The thing for me, like, um, again, much of it I think comes back to narrative for me. Like, the, the, the very look of the beginning of the film, which mm-hmm. is slight green tint, uh, heavy black crunch, so like almost uh, you know, like things that are black and close to black are all crunched to black. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit flatter, you know, you know, so that the world itself doesn't have a whole lot of depth. Like yeah. there's not a lot of warmth. It's washed out a little bit. All of that has narrative meaning. Mm-hmm. Like it, it is a composed, created digital world, and the text of that world, as we learn later in their whatever their right. translators, is right. green. Yeah. Like you know, like the the the, it, the the like the the very color balancing of. The, from the very first shot on mm-hmm. has meaning right and every time we go back there like the very colors that things are and the speed mm-hmm. at which things go in that world mm-hmm. all have meaning in the story yeah um you know and there's a clear contrast i mean i'm not i mean everyone knows this i'm not didn't you know between yeah. like the way the shots look in the matrix which is whitish and greenish and uh-huh. the way shots look in the real world which are sort of like brown and have this sort of golden hue to it yeah the sound space is different the sound is flatter and a little bit more compressed in the matrix mm-hmm. um all that stuff is you know clearly has a lot of forethought um yeah and it's just like it's I mean you know it's almost like a like I said this about Ben Folds who I like a lot I mean because I heard him on the Hamilton mixtape <laughs> hashtag 
nerd um, <laughs> is a uh, you know I can hear Ben Folds play like three notes on a piano and I know that it's him. There's something mm. about you know just like you can hear Miles Davis play yeah, yeah. one note on yeah. his trumpet and you know it's him. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see like one just like a, a tiny let's see like a, a one shot of that film and you know what's going on. Yeah, um, and that for me was you know visually so interesting because mm-hmm. like you know like I it just I, I can see. I remember so clearly all the different parts of the Matrix yeah. and how and how those visual images you know went along with the story. Mm-hmm. I think um, a lot of the examples of films that I'm talking about on this episode will relate to this, but I, you know, we talked about how originality, as we're talking about it, doesn't mean that things are like fully, you know, it was the Wachowski siblings, you know ideas yeah, and yeah we came out of this and we talked about you know um joseph campbell with star wars and that's a straight you know um use of that that hero's journey in the matrix and so it's they like were, the searchers plus you right, know like and, hidden castle equals you know a new hope yeah and you know uh different sort of um faiths and spirituality in it and i think a big thing is too if you look at uh they even mentioned you know um anime as a big influence and there was the animatrix and stuff after that yeah. but i which think it's great if you haven't seen the animatrix you which should is watch great yeah that stuff. yeah um better than the sequels uh but i think people might say well they just were kind of copying anime style action but i think the deal is we had never seen it like live action done well you know like taking those ideas of anime action into live action and doing it well and having yeah, that feel for it. I got to say, too, I mean, one of the things that I'm, I'm so picky about is, like, practicals. Mm-hmm. Like, one of the reasons why The Lord of the Rings was so successful, <laughs> I, I say it was all the time to Eli, yeah. is, like, they had people for, like, a whole year, like, doing nothing but making, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, like, armor for the orcs and weapons for the orcs and building everything, you know, and they got yeah. artists and craftsmen right. and artisans to build all these things. Yeah. You know, and even in the shots, even in the, I mean, I love Lord of the Rings, even in the shots where there's, like, <laughs> all, some CGI, there's a whole bunch of real things to like mm-hmm. all the horse shots have 70% real horses and 30% right. of horses, you know, because we can digitally shoot them, make yeah. you shoot real horses. And in the Matrix, one of the things that, you know, like for me, it's like it all comes down to like Han Solo's blaster. Like in A New Hope, <laughs> you, you can you can feel the weight mm-hmm. of Han Solo's blaster in his hand. Right. You can feel the dirt on the walls of Moss Eisley. That is a mm-hmm. smoke filled room. I don't know, you know, like yeah, they, yeah. they had somebody create that effect so that you right. feel it through the screen, uh-huh. right? In the Matrix, all those like black leather outfits that they wear when they're yeah. there, they're 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 like they clearly they have weight, they mm-hmm. they're designed for their bodies. Yeah. It's not like plasticine or whatever it is. It looks like um what it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And their guns are real and it's heavy and their bullets on the floor. Yeah. You know, like they, it, it all yeah. has the the like the the weight and mass of real things mm-hmm. and they seem to pay great attention to that yeah. and it's just it's something that like i don't know the exact science or math of how that stuff works but you know it's you can tell it and it's like i don't know you know it when you see it yeah um because you know even other films at the time that cgi had special effects and you're like mm-hmm. especially like my i hate this example but like yeah. blade 2 comes out a couple years later there's one like cgi scene of like blade fighting mm-hmm. you know guys coming into his place in, yeah. with these like spotlights it's like a bad video game <laughs> scene with him flipping around and it just yeah, ruins the whole CGI, film yeah. you know, like trying to pass that off as real and mm-hmm. the matrix i mean i mean like unlike any other film at the time with the exception of perhaps like crouching tiger hidden dragon which comes out a few four years later yeah um 
everything just has that solid the, the, like the weight of realness and the solidity that just like you just can't look away mm-hmm. you're like you know right. I guess that's part of for me like watching it I was almost transfixed like that mm-hmm. that moment when they go into the building like they're walking sideways yeah. off the walls like I am right. never catapulted out of that because of disbelief mm-hmm. or because it doesn't look right I mean it looks like exactly what it's supposed to look like yeah and the bullets fall in the right direction and right. the dudes are hit and the stuff explodes it's just yeah. masterful in that way yeah um yeah i think uh you know the matrix is is a well-known film so i'm not going to spend too much more time yeah, yeah. on that um we can move on here but i think yeah i mean i i think for me that sort of experience of seeing all those things come together so well um like is is not an experience i've had again at least yeah. you know kind of in that genre and stuff like that so um i think it was a really fun experience uh, the next film I want to talk about is also um, came to me when I was in high school. Um, so I don't even know what what I was watching that this would have been on, but yeah. uh, um, Fellini's Eight and a Half, uh, the t- Italian film, which I have never seen. You have never seen? No, but I. Oh, I've you know it. of it? I yeah. mean, no, I've seen it. clips. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I also didn't see well. I didn't see it originally from the beginning, so I kind of came into it and was pro- I think it was kind of flipping channels, and for some reason it was on regular television, and uh, came to the scene where um, it's sort of in this like uh, mineral water spa like um, garden area. So there's people just sort of wandering, drinking this natural water, which is supposed to be rejuvenating and stuff. Um, but just has this like sense of dreaminess to it and characters just sort of almost feel like they're floating around um, as they walk up and uh, the the camera's almost constantly moving but really fluidly mm-hmm. um, and, and when it comes into that scene it's it's basically from a first person point of view so like the other sort of characters out in this sort of garden area are um, sort of waving at, you know, the camera as if it's like a person coming out there sort of greeting them oh, yeah. and things like that. And so it just adds to you being in that space and uh, with these people in this interesting way. Um, I think that also that scene and the film in general, but that one really emphasizes the contrast of color. It's black and white. And so characters are almost like monochrome dressed in either black or white. There's nuns walking around. So, you know, oh, yeah. their, uh, their dress is, um, is monochrome that way. And uh, against sort of stark white backgrounds and things like that. Um, so I was just like transfixed. We were talking about that. Like, I was just like, what is this? And just couldn't like stop watching, even though I didn't have any idea what was happening. And I'm sure. Sh- Sometimes still watching that film, not sure what's happening, but uh, yeah. So I, I went back and soon um, watched the whole thing. It was really interesting, um, and then watched it again in college, in undergrad for film school. But um, it was really my introduction to Fellini, and still maybe my favorite because of I think sometimes just like your first experience of yeah. of a filmmaker or something is uh, is the one that sticks with you. Um, but I think looking back. It's just fascinating to me. I think another trend for me is sort of... Um, dreaminess? Dreaminess, yes. Um, also uh, meta sort of qualities yeah. within it. So it's about um, a filmmaker who doesn't know what film to make next 
And so that's why he's at the spa uh trying to sort of get in a mindset, get away so he can come up with an idea and understand. But sort of gets um, so bogged down in his own sort of phobias about, you know, uh, relationships and um, being an artist and creativity and what he wants to accomplish and at the same time being sort of drugged down by you know things in the world that distract us um, like women his wives and things like that mistresses so uh, there are some actual like dream sequences and things like that like the opening of the film um, is very kind of surreal and and, uh, and obviously a dream um, so I don't know. I, I just love all that sort of talking about, I mean, it, it, it's obviously people say that it's Fellini, you know, this is a surrogate for Fellini himself right, in right. the film, um, trying to figure out what is next. And obviously he had made seven films and some short films up to that point, oh, right. which is the seven. This is his eight and a half, yeah. eight and a half fifth film. So, uh, yeah. So it's kind of very uh, self-referential in that way. So I kind of like that aspect. Um, but it's, I, it's oh, interesting. I mean, the thing that I think of, I don't know if this is actually related, but I, yeah. it allows me to talk about something that I like, which is um, Andy Warhol. Um, mm-hmm. I, I grew up in Pittsburgh and sort of grew up in the shadow of Andy Warhol in that, yeah. like, his style was, like, cool kids like Andy Warhol, you know. There's mm-hmm. Andy Warhol Museum, which I went to. Um, and, uh, you know, and we were, like, super proud. You know, we're like, we yeah. got, like, a real funky artist, you right. know, from our place. You know, it's mm-hmm. Steel Town. Um, and I've watched a couple of his films, uh, some in film school and some of my own. Um, and, uh, like, I don't know if you've ever seen the film Andy Warhol Eats a Cheeseburger. Uh, no. It's Andy Warhol uh, eating a cheeseburger. Okay, that's what I expected. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and it's like, it, it's like there, there's just something about, like, um, the way in which he playfully tongue-in-cheek messes with your boredom. Mm-hmm. You know, that like, I think yeah. Andy, Warhol, Andy Warhol eats a cheeseburger is like eight minutes long or something. <laughs> it's like way longer than you expect. So you have all these moments where you're like, he's going to yeah. be done or something's going to happen. Yeah. And I think at the end he says like, ah, oh, that was good or something. You know, he smiles <laughs> at you with a sort of wry smile. That right, like, right. You just spent eight minutes watching, watching me eat, eat a hamburger. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's also, uh, there's just something about like, um, it's like I'm gonna make a film about this thing mm-hmm. um, that uh, it, and being very honest about what it is like this is yeah. my eight and a half film right um, there's something about this is interesting uh-huh. and, and like playful in a fun way yeah, you know in a way sure. that like um, if Andy Warhol were to give his film a sort of like complicated meaningful title mm-hmm. like the consume like the modern consumer steps for you know or something right, like right. that. You're like, oh, it's like heavy and arty. Right, pretentious sort of thing, yeah. But by just calling it what it is, it allows you to like, I think, get a lot more out of it. Yeah. You know, and like, and so I, I having not seen Eight and a Half, but yeah. the description of it, it somehow makes me think about, um, you know, because there's, mm-hmm. all, you know, Andy Warhol films. There's also one called Empire, which is like, <laughs> it's a seven minute shot of an M- the Empire State Building at night. <laughs> That's what it is. Um, you know, and yeah. 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 No, I like that. Um, I mean, that's all fascinating to me, I think, because it to me it adds layers. Um, I mean, I can understand how some people think it's pretentious, possibly. Um, but And also, I mean, that was... Not that people hadn't done concepts like that before, even played with, you know, um, portraying the film industry yeah. in films. But uh, I like the playfulness of it, and it adds more interesting things to me and i also like films that explore 
the the uh, creative mindset and yeah. um, the struggles that artists go through or um, things like that or how silly sometimes that is that we <laughs> feel like we are tortured artists or something. Hey, have you ever seen Once, Eli? I have. I like. I mean, I like music, so yeah. you know, like it's a it's an awesome. Yeah, yeah. Film about people making music. Yeah. Um, Sing Street is very popular this year. I don't same know. same is director. It? Oh, really? Yeah, same writer. Oh. About some kids that started a band. Oh. So, yeah. It's on Netflix, by the way. Um, so, uh, Eight and a Half, I think, is just like this, has this like dizzying effect on me just because the camera's constantly yeah. moving. There's figures always kind of moving within the space and changing. Um, changing sort of planes of in the space yeah. um, that we're looking at. You know, in that scene I was talking about out in um, uh, the garden sort of area, you know, we see sort of far off people moving around out in this park, but then suddenly um, a person will come in the foreground of the frame and it just changes our perspective on what we're looking at. Um, so I just really like all those aspects. Uh, it's just exciting for me. And, um I don't know, it makes me excited about watching film and what they can do. Uh, So I always like returning to those kind of films because it uh, energizes, I guess, my experience of making films as well, um, of what you can accomplish. Uh, I remember one of my um, uh, professors when I was like taking film class at UW is a um, a guy named Patrick Keating, um, teaches, I think, at Trinity uh, Place in Texas now. And and one of the things he always talked about in introduction class was like how... Um, you know that some people treat the the film frame as like a you know like a this giant rectangular canvas mm-hmm. you know and the goal of it is to like to make a um a, a, you know like it's a two dimensional image right. but you're you're working with it to make it sort of seem like a three dimensional image yeah. um you know and they're just some I mean like it's a really big space mm-hmm. and people that use all of that space and use the full depth of vision and the full right. depth of perspective um you know sometimes it's like uh, remarkable to watch because mm-hmm. so much of the space is used yeah. um, in a way. Because other, other times it's just like, oh, we have we have one focal object there, and mm-hmm. we have some things around it. Yeah. You know, you know, it could be like a little old vignette where it's just like a little circle. We don't need that other stuff. And other people like, you know, you have stuff going on all the time. Focus is shifting mm-hmm. forward and back. You're moving through space. Um, you know, and it really yeah. there's a lot you can do with this little rectangle you have. Right. Right. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's all fully utilized in eight and a half. And uh, just briefly, what I originally also th- thought about talking about on this topic is my experience with Citizen Kane. Yeah. But I feel like it's so cliche to kind of say, like, one of your favorite films is Citizen Kane. But, yeah. like, legitimately, this film was influential for me, like... I found it in junior high, yeah. like fifth grade, and like didn't know the kind of status it had, and like got it. I'm from a small town of like 2,000 people, so like our access to film was like the library, which just had like old films, yeah, um, or like uh, the video store was in the pizza place, so like we didn't have a large selection. I had yeah. to drive 45 minutes to go to like a real video store at the yeah. time to find something good. So I was checking out what I could find at the library, and it said, like, oh, this visually interesting film. And I was like, okay, I like weird stuff. Um, And I was. I was, like, blown away by it. And I think it's even taken me years to really understand fully what's happening in it. 
Um, I mean, as far as like what he was doing. Yeah, I mean, but, yeah. there certainly is like a Citizen Kane rabbit hole we could go down. Um, certainly, yeah. yeah. Are but, you not a fan? Oh, no, no. Oh, I, okay. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like, and again, like about using the whole frame. I mean, Orson Welles, you know, uses exactly. super, super tiny apertures to get this massive depth of field. Mm-hmm. So we have like things in the foreground and the background. Yeah. Um, the story is interesting and exciting. It has a mix of like serious and funny and absurd. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's yeah. just, it's a, yeah. from beginning to end, it's just fabulous. Right. I remember um, when I was teaching uh, film classes. Uh, to college students and I would show them that because it was usually kind of like the introduction film class. Yeah. And um, I would show them the scenes where you can see like the power dynamics change by who's closest to the camera and like these shifting um, power relationships and things like that. And, you know, Kane as a young boy is in the center of this. So he's like framed through the... So like these things that I was like, isn't this blowing your mind, guys? And they were just like, oh, this is old boring black yeah, and white film boring, yeah. yeah i was just like come on guys get this anyways um so i guess the relationship i'm talking about there is as you were talking about kind of uh his use of space i think yeah. was new the the focal length um getting everything in focus so i saw that in fellini as well yeah um in the way that he was using that and also more of a moving kind of floating camera and it I'll talk about this in my next example too, but there's like this modernism that I didn't know sort of existed in, you know, black and white films or something. Yeah, when I was yeah, searching, yeah. I was like, some of it's kind of feels handheld, but there's like smoother parts, and I just like yeah. hadn't seen older films like that before. Yeah. Um, also, I mean, I, I just I, it's about um, Citizen Kane. Yeah. Um, there's one of my f- a book that I like a great deal. It's called The Inva- Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay. Have yeah, you read it? I read it. Yeah. yeah so like, there's the, there's a the point in there like when when um, like they go and see Citizen Kane and like uh, blows their minds. Right. And and it's the visuality or is mm-hmm. that a word like uh, <laughs> of that film that like inspires them to a whole new level of um, creation of the uh, graphic novels. Graphic that novels are the, comes, the, yeah. the, the center of that yeah. story. I keep hearing over the years a film version of that book, but I've not. No. seen it come out yeah. I don't know sometimes they shouldn't do that but. Yeah, it's a great book you don't yeah. really know. Um, so my last example uh, is also kind of includes I'm kind of going to kind of mix two together I'm going to cheat a little bit not that we can't make up our own rules <laughs> but uh, so I was originally going to say um, Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless yeah um, but I think I really realized like the film that had more of an impact for me um, for Godard was uh, Pierre Le Fou, mm-hmm. and forgive me any listeners who know French. I'm gonna butcher those um, French names and stuff, language. Uh, but I, I don't know of a English version Pierre the Mad or something. I've heard it, um, but it's never referenced like that. Uh, anyway, so I saw Breathless in some kind of introduction college film class, and didn't have any knowledge of the French New Wave or Godard or anything. And again, it sort of really struck me of like the modernness of that film. And and I, I don't need to be the one that sort of um, talks about this in that podcast because it's been well documented right. in many books and things like that, analysis. But um, just the, the way that they utilized handheld cameras at that time because that technology was brand new, that they, could, they weren't heavy and had to sit on tripods and things like that, that they could... Uh, 
pick them up and carry them around. And he um, used a documentary cinematographer, and that's who kind of stuck with him after that. But that was brought that kind of knowledge of that um, to his films. So I think Breathless really kind of um, brought me into that world mm-hmm. um, of sort of those modern films and what they were doing. Yeah. Um, and I do kind of want to mention like both. Well, actually, all of these examples, but, like, more talking about kind of artsy films. Yeah. But I think what I like, too, is there's just, like, this certain charm to Breathless. Yeah. That I think was just, like, lightning in a bottle at that time, you know? Just, like, that you can't recreate in certain ways. And the same thing with Eight and a Half. Like, yes, it's kind of this, uh, you know, ethereal, dreamy, pretentious concept, but, like, the main character is just like so cool you know like yeah there's no um going around that so uh and i mean i think breathless was commenting on i mean really the main character is not that cool and that's part of the story yeah. he thinks he's a gangster like criminal and can uh you know flirt with all the ladies and get who he wants but really they know he's kind of an idiot and mm-hmm. a loser um Anyway, so, uh, you know, the visual uh, style that Godard brought and was exploring, I think he really um, kind of completed in Pierre Le Fou. Uh, this is a color film compared with Breathless. I think it might have been his first color film. Not positive. Um, and kind of a lot like Eight and a Half, there's this strong contrast still where he's using primary colors mm-hmm. um, with these sort of striking backgrounds. Um, there's a lot of uh, monochromatic areas in the film um, with their costuming and things like that, bright colors. Uh, I think, again, the camera moves a lot. In this aspect, I like visually that I realize you could throw in things like, um, you know, he just referenced things all the time. So kind of the way we think of, like, Tarantino now, which I know you're not a big fan. Sorry, it's fine. But, uh, you know, he... People always talk about all the pop culture references yeah. he has, and you know it's maybe harder for us to connect with these pop culture references from the '60s. Right. Yeah. But you know he's throwing out. You know, they read poetry on screen. They read, yeah. uh, you know, uh, film criticism from books, and um, he pops up. You know, um, artwork on the screen just intercut with like normal scenes which I was um, was really unique, and I was just like, you can do that? And uh, um, just, like, bold lighting. There's a scene at the beginning where uh, the main character goes to a party um, with these people, and I think it is a stationary shot as he goes to these different rooms, but, like, each room has different, like, bold lighting. Like, one room is just, like, red lighting, and the next room is, like, blue lighting, and they're just kind of, like... Uh, solid lighting against these backgrounds mm-hmm. um and it just obviously changes unrealistically between them um so it was kind of giving me this concept of like i can identify with these characters i can follow this story but like it doesn't have to be realistic like yeah um you can kind of do whatever you want and make it fun i think it's still a really fun playful film yeah um and the characters help a lot uh, to uh, to deal with that uh, have you seen any Godard films? No. No. None. None. No. It's super embarrassing. Okay. We'll we'll remedy that. Yeah. Sometime. I have a couple. Um. 
So, uh, yeah, I mean, and the, and the story is not easy. Like, I think the story is not really the point um, of this film because it kind of meanders. Uh, there's sequences where, you know, the editing shows things that jump ahead just like a couple yeah. minutes and it cuts back. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of intercutting in this time to show you what's happening next. Uh, but I think just like those bold colors and the way that he uses them, um, there is some sort of outdoor scenes uh, that kind of show that. So I, I just like the way that he was referencing sort of these pop culture elements um, and making it fun, but then also kind of talking about these esoteric, um, the striving for artistic authenticity yeah. and then sort of um, sort of losing that and downplaying it, you know, the next moment. So uh, I think uh, I was reading recently that he was going for more of like this emotional intensity mm-hmm. in the visuals than trying to necessarily make that happen in the story um, yeah. that we would normally connect like, oh, this is an emotional moment between these characters. But it was more just like, this is an emotional... Um, sort of like a uh, confrontational moment in just the way that I'm watching the film. The visuals right. are like striking me mm-hmm. in a strong way. So I really uh, appreciated that. So I recommend people go back and watch it. May not be for everybody. Um, it's a little bit hard to find, but I know it's on uh, Criterion Collection now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, to be able to find it. Uh, I feel like there was something else I was going to mention about it, but. Uh, oh, the. I mean, the characters are just great. Um, Anna Karina, who was uh, Godard's wife, but Mm -hmm. they divorced during the film. film. Um, And it's kind of been known as, like, changing the story to show how she sort of, like, broke the the main characters, her love interest, like, artistic vision and his, you know, (laughs) like, inspiration kind of killed it. and you, I won't give away the ending, but you definitely see that at the end uh, with it. Um, so, yeah, that is Père Le Fou. Um, long explanation. Kind of hard to describe it, but... Uh, yeah, so that's kind of my visual journey. The Matrix. The Matrix. Eight and a half. Eight and a half. Breathless slash Godard. Other yeah, films. Godard, other films. And I think... I made a film that was very non-linear and tried to do some of these crazy things that I uh, I felt like Godard was doing, but it's it's tough. I mean, I don't see other filmmakers pull it. I mean, I don't identify as much with other French New Wave directors. Yeah. Um, I mean, Francois Truffaut did some great things that I do like, but some of the other directors are not. I mean, I just don't think they have the, the energy and the sort of splashiness that Godard had. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. That's your segment. That's my segment. Um, um, we're going to move on to you. That's enough of me talking. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, I, uh, beginning with my embarrassment about not watching Godard films, I think all, all film people watch them and know about them. <laughs> I do know about styles of the French New Wave. Yes. Like the jump cut and other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, so, uh, in that vein, um, people often ask me, like, what is your favorite film? Mm-hmm. You know that I had like you know I've made documentary films, yeah. work at filmmaking, do other film projects, talk hard, film. Hard question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you know I, uh, 
you know, I guess the, the, the question, like, what's your favorite film versus, like, what do you think is the best film are always mm-hmm. separate. But I, one of my favorite films of all time um, is uh, Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Um, and uh, oftentimes I tell people and they're like, oh, you know, like, you like that film? Or, <laughs> so like, you know, like, yeah. oh, that's you what know, you like, mentioned? Yeah. Yeah, like, that's... I expected it to be some super pretentious foreign film or, like, some really literary film. Like Eight and a Half or something. Yeah, like Eight and a Half or something. Yeah. Um, but the truth is, I mean, when, I, when I'm thinking about originality, for me, um, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I like, I love all the f- the, the Baz Luhrmann films in mm-hmm. that Red Curtain trilogy. Strictly yeah. Ballroom, Romeo plus Juliet, mm-hmm. um, and Moulin Rouge. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, when I watched Moulin Rouge, like, I, I had never seen anything like it. You know, and like even like the the moments in there, especially the moments when they're like, um, you know, like the two main characters are like singing their love for each other by quoting a whole smattering of like pop songs. Like I'm hard pressed to find that anywhere. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes people sing songs like in biopics, those characters sing their songs or sometimes Mm -hmm. people will, um, you know, in musicals sing Mm -hmm. songs. But never had I seen this interesting mix of reference and new meaning and fun yeah i mean and like the um for those of you who've seen the film if you haven't it's fantabulously fantabulous <laughs> um you know there's a scene where like this narcoleptic argentinian dancer uh mm. sings a cover of roxanne which yeah. is absolutely decadent and perfect <laughs> um you know like it is both meaningful in the way that it references roxanne um in the meaning of that song and, mm-hmm. and it's like absolutely powerful and meaningful in the story and the way mm-hmm. that he does it yeah. it fits with everything um one of the things I liked about it most, though, um, was like the the way in which one of the things that I um, there's a moment in mm-hmm. sort of any film or TV show or story that I when I when I talk about film to people, it's like it's that moment at which you're like you're like okay, like I, I buy into to the the major suppositions you're asking me to make, yeah, and you sit back in your chair and you're ready for the story. You're like, uh-huh. all right, yeah, I'm in this world amaze me you know mm-hmm. tell me your story give mm-hmm. me your, your protagonist i, I yeah. buy it um and like from the moment moulin rouge opens you're like you're like figuratively standing there with your popcorn in your hand <laughs> you know it takes like right, right. 30 40 minutes before you're like oh wait oh oh yeah oh okay yeah okay um you know and it's just this railroad of you know yeah. over the top things harold Zidler's flying in the air mm-hmm. you know like france is all over the place there's sequins and a giant elephant and all this fabulous fabulous yeah. stuff um and it's you know it's like it sustained at such a dizzying pace mm-hmm. that I I mean there just isn't another film where I'm like that I have that same experience yeah um, and I just you know I just like I like couldn't believe what I was watching when I watched <laughs> it I'm like this is there is no, I've never seen anything like this this is so entertaining mm-hmm. it's France it's turn of the century <laughs> it's writers it's love it's yeah. good actors it's singing mm-hmm. it's everything that I love. And, you know, and like, and the costumes are over the top, um, and yet there's still deep feeling. Right. Um, and also, and so, you know, like, I, and I don't think I have the, you know, as a, I don't know if I would ever make a film like that. I, mm. I, I honestly don't think I have the, like, <laughs> stamina or right, wherewithal yeah. to, yeah. to make a film of that magnitude. I mean, because mm-hmm. it's just so dense in the, mm-hmm. in the way that it references and makes new. Yeah. Um, and Ewan McGregor is adorable. Nicole Kidman is fabulous. Yeah. Um, you know, John, like, you know, everybody. Um, so I, uh, we talked about this a little bit, but I am not like a Broadway musical fan. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. like that would probably yeah. be like the last thing that I sort of want right. to watch. 
And um, I was, I love Moulin Rouge. Yeah. yeah. So like I saw it twice in the theater. <laughs> like I wanted to go back and you're right. It just has like this, such a fun, like dizzying aspect to it. That's yeah. just great. Like you just get pulled in. And I think um, he has this thing where like, like a split second difference you can be feeling like happy and then like on the verge of crying yeah. and like literally like i felt like i had like tears sometimes in that film. yeah oh yeah yeah and uh yeah like from the opening when ian mcgregor's like sitting down to write like yeah. i almost feel like man this is like tragedy already yeah and yeah. then like you jump into all this fun and it's like yeah. i don't know how he does that um well, I think I mean Don, I think a lot of it is sound. I mean, the yeah. sound sound editing in that film was great. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the the sounds of motion, the sounds of people, the sounds yeah. of space. Um, you know, the songs themselves, the mm-hmm. key the stuff is in. I mean, yeah. there, there's a, there's a whole lot of of using uh, visuals and sound and mm-hmm. camera motion and digital camera motion. Yeah. You know, to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also, I mean, I, I have I I don't know I don't know if it's have I have like an artistic justification for it. Yeah. But I just love like there's a kind of decadent fabulousness that I love in the world like mm. I like I like meatloaf's music like <laughs> there's no I mean like there's nobody else out there with a, a guitar and a saxophone saying two out of three ain't bad and have it be both absurd yeah. and meaningful at the same time yeah you know like you know riding a motorcycle through the middle um of the Rocky Horror Picture Show like nobody has that same mm-hmm. like absurdity and heart um <laughs> that I just love yeah. you know and and in that film you know, like this. You know, like Kylie Minogue has the green fairy, and then there's an entire ocean of green fairies <laughs> kicking. I mean, it just it just keeps going. Yeah. And they make the visuals work. You know. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh. You know, there's all the colors are rich. Yeah. And so. Um. Yeah. The 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 thing that I you know emphasize about it most is the way in which everything is sort of used to um just draw you along on this thing mm. it doesn't exhaust you it also yeah. like it doesn't yeah. it's not like a film where Energizes, you're like we're yeah. gonna set you up for this big part at the end i mm. mean there's a big part at the end but like you're having a you're having a great rip-roaring entertaining laugh out loud cry your heart out time mm-hmm. you know the whole way through right um so uh, can yeah, i mention a theory you i'm theory. working yeah. on yeah, so uh like i said i don't i'm not a big fan of musicals but there are certain ones including moulin rouge um, that I've, I'm trying to identify exactly what the quality is, but I think I don't love singing songs where like people are speaking their sort of emotions or like yeah. what's happening. Um, and I think Moulin Rouge has some of that. I mean, you get the, the words of the songs they pick sometimes yeah. for the meeting, but I think it's more about like the performance of the singing is so heartfelt yeah, that I feel it in the way they sing, and it's different than like a great singer on Broadway performing this song, right, right, passionately. But like, I feel like in Moulin Rouge, like I identify, and I, maybe it's it's also sometimes like the not perfectness of there because I don't know that Nicole Kidman and Ian McGregor are like the greatest singers. Yeah, but I would they, say. They I'm do not st- an expert. Stand up they job. do a good job. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that's part of the the part of what I like about it. Um, I also like the film Dancer in the Dark. Have you ever seen that? No. With Bjork? Um, no, but people talk about it. Yeah, yeah. So, like, that. I mean, that's not definitely not a standard musical, but I really enjoy it. But I think she, the way, I mean, I, I'm a fan of Bjork anyways, but I think even in her albums, you can just hear, like, 
her breath and her emotion yeah. and all of it and is included. So I think I, I get pulled into that. I have not seen La La Land yet. No. People... But just from the trailers, I think I'm going to love it, which again mm-hmm. is like, I can't really know why suddenly I like that as a musical. But yeah. um, even though it's supposed to be a throwback to classic Yeah, musicals, I mean, so. I love musicals, but, um, you know, I, I just love them. But the th- one of the things I like about Moulin Rouge is like the, the, the music, there's a... The music is used sparingly, even though there's lots of singing. Mm-hmm. You know, we get a snippet of a song, yeah. you know, a half a chorus or a right. chorus, and that tells us the meaning. Mm-hmm. You know, and a lot of you know, it's a long story, and we have a lot of these sort of musical or you know, visual vignettes which mm-hmm. guide us through things. Um, and you know, it's just like a you know, like a, a stone skipping across a pond. Like it has to be moving mm-hmm. quickly in order to keep that that level up, which sort of sustained most of the way through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I don't know exactly how that. So there's something about the the pace of it and the style of it that I yeah. just that I just loved. Um, and and again, what was most unique about it is like the you know if you think about this sort of unique utterance of like you know Ewan McGregor singing mm-hmm. um, Elton John, yeah. you know, to Nicole Kidman in this film. Like mm-hmm. th- there's no there's no other parallel I think to that. Yeah. kind of act in the film mm-hmm. um, and certainly like you know there was a time when you musicals in the US would generate pop songs which people would read you know or people would listen to and they would be there but not in this order and not in this way yeah um, you know and it's so you know and I always you know I always sort of as a filmmaker always would balk at like all these laws about copyright I'm like but this is this <laughs> is the, the stuff which we compose with this is yeah, the yeah. clay which would be worth so the other thing about the film which will get me to my next thing is um uh, you know, so one of the things I studied when I was a student was like religion and culture of South Asia, and I also studied sort of uh, uh, cinema in India. Mm-hmm. Um, primarily, uh, cinema. In, I mean, I'm not an expert in it by any means, but yeah. cinema in India is primarily divided into like language groups. You know, there's mm-hmm. like, uh, Hindi cinema, there's Telugu cinema, there's Tamil cinema. There's each. You know, um, that's sort of how the markets, I yeah. guess, are broken down. And so my my, my study is primarily of like Hindi language cinema, uh, of which Bollywood is like a huge like the sort of huge stone in there. Um, and is, if you is Bollywood uh, strictly pretty much Hindi? It's a film? super good question. Yeah. Um, I don't have an answer, but I mean, uh, like as far as I know, yeah. Um, like the the vast majority, if not the totality, of like what we would consider Bollywood are um, uh, Hindi language. Hindi films. language, yeah. Uh, which doesn't mean that they're not dubbed into other languages or subtitled in other languages, but they're primarily um, recorded in Hindi by people that speak Hindi for those films, okay. whether it's their first or second or third language. Yeah, um, it's called Bollywood because it's based out of Bombay, um, <laughs> and Hollywood plus the B of Bombay equals Bollywood. Um, it's it. not called Bombay anymore. It's a it's a British term. It's now called Mumbai, which is which it used to be called a long time ago, <laughs> and that stuff is really complicated. But so if you look at Moulin Rouge, there's a number, there's a whole bunch of Indian stuff in it, right? Uh-huh. Giant elephant, sitar that only speaks the truth, um, and you know at the final number there's uh, a bunch of Indian dancers, there's a bunch right. of Indian dancing, Indian imagery. Um, you hear um, this famous uh, Indian recording artist record some of the sound in there, mm-hmm. um, of course. Um, and so uh, at the time, and I don't even know if other people said this, but I was like, oh my gosh, like this is an American Bollywood film. Yeah, like this, this is. Um, and so, you know, talking about originality, it's uh, it, it has a style very much like um, the the decadence and joy and mm. you know whateverness yeah. um, effervescence of yeah. a lot of uh, Bollywood films, but it does it in, in, a, in a totally different way. I mean, there's like there is not um, uh, there is not another film like Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Um, but so uh, 
I, I guess so. Like in, I mean, there's there's a whole lot of, um, uh, you know, Hindi films or Bollywood films that I could talk about that I like. Um, but in general, like the, the, the there there's enough uh, similarity to a lot of the films that there is there's a form to it, like like the old Hollywood film, you know, like mm. the old. Hollywood noir, the old right. Hollywood um, romantic comedy, you know, um, in that like it's three hours long. There's an intermission and an hour and a half. You know, uh, all the important moments are generally done in song. There's yeah. a relationship between like two people that shouldn't be married. There's conflict, you know, usually Hindu Muslim things, not always. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also like just decadent dance numbers. You know, I mean, even so much that like you know, film will be okay moving along. And then like, they clearly upgraded the stock. It's clearly a better camera. <laughs> you know, like this is where all the budget is spent on yeah, these yeah, yeah. beautiful dance numbers. numbers. Yeah. And you see that kind of thing in, in Moulin Rouge where you're like, you know, mm. there's a little setup, like, what are you feeling about this thing? And then an archaeoptic Argentinian, you know, <laughs> sings um, Roxanne. Go into it, yeah. um, but uh, sort of, this is sort of, so transitioning. So there's a whole lot of stuff to be said about like um, Indian film and mm-hmm. Baz Luhrmann and things like that. Um, but there, there's a, an Indian film that uh, I, I want to talk about for a narrative reason, um, and that is a film called Shole. Um, I don't remember what year it came out. I think it's like in the mid-70s. Um, it's not important. not important. Yeah. Um, if you have a chance to see Shole or have seen it, um, it's one of Amitabh Bachchan's earlier films um, in which he plays like a lovable sort of Han Solo-esque character. <laughs> um, in general, the film uh, is referred to as a curry western um, in that it is like uh, you know, like you know, Leone made spaghetti westerns. Okay, gotcha. Um, it is a a western that's set in India um, and has much of the flavors of Indian cinema, but is uh, at its heart sort of like the a western kind of story. Literally, like uh, cowboys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. yeah, there. I mean, there weren't. There isn't an equivalent in India to the Wild West. Mm-hmm. Because uh, there wasn't really a frontier in that sense, but they're like guys on horses with guns, and the film opens with a train robbery. Okay. Um, and the story is long and complicated. Um, sure. But in you know, um, uh, Shole. I mean, Shole from I mean, from all the the Indians that I know, um, certainly like the, the speak Hindi. Like it, for for like for a generation of people, it's it's like the the Hindi Star Wars. Okay. Like you know, you know, there's a character in there called the Takur, who's this. Um, Guy we meet at the beginning, he enlists our lovable young rascals to go to a job for him <laughs> in a revenge plot. Um, everybody knows the Takor. Like you can, in, in a lot of Hindi, you know, like um, language newspapers, you can just say the Takor, which essentially means it's, it's like it is as universally known in many circles as like saying Darth Vader. Like gotcha. everybody knows, everybody knows, even yeah. if you haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like you know, because you probably have seen it. Yeah. It's um, and also like the the main bad character, um, this character named Gabbar Singh, is like again, he's like Darth Vader. Like, mm. everybody knows who he everybody is. He's universally that. bad. Yeah. And so, part of what I love about this film, um, the songs are great and catchy. Um, it's it's a fun thing because it, it, it's like a, a, a Western um, thing. Um, and uh, without explaining the entire plot, um, so like the, which I, I will not do. Um, Eli gave me the like, oh my gosh, don't do that sign. Um, no, I said we're good. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah sorry. Okay. Um, uh so um, I don't remember Amitabh Bachchan's character's name because um, I watched it primarily in Hindi, which I mm-hmm. you know was much more fluent at at some point. So I watched some of sometimes I don't remember his name. But so like um, Amitabh's character and his friend are robbing uh, a train, and then mm-hmm. um, they end up doing something which uh, sets them like they get noticed, and this this sort of like local rich man magistrate named the Takur um, uh, asks them to do a job. They eventually mm-hmm. get involved in this uh, long revenge plot. Yeah. 
he eventually find out that uh, this evil sort of dacoit, this like evil rascal um, <laughs> bandit named um, Gubber Singh um, killed the Takor's family and cut his arms off. Wow. Um, yeah, it's remarkable. And again, um, and so uh, many things happen and eventually like the Takor um, has, through these people that he asked, sort of gets revenge mm-hmm. um, on uh, Gubber Singh and he's sort of broken and dying in his little bad guy hideout yeah. with bandoliers of guns. And the Takor um, goes and and kicks him to death uh, <laughs> with spiked shoes. In is a, it, is in this a, a spoiler? Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, yeah. the film... I mean, I knew how it ended before I got there, and it's gotcha. a fun journey to get there sure. anyway. Yeah. I mean, you don't, of course, for most of the film, don't know that the Tucker had his arms cut off. You don't learn that till later. Um, but what I love about it is, you know, it's it's a three-ish hour movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the Tucker is this this noble man who is utterly wrong. His family was butchered, and he's, he's quietly seeking revenge his whole life, a person we can understand, bringing justice to the world. Mm-hmm. And he finally gets the sweetest possible revenge. You know, like yeah. he, I mean, without arms, he bests <laughs> this horrible person. Um, what I love about it is uh, after he beats um, Gubber Singh at the end, there's this this sort of shot where the camera comes back and and w- what should be this triumphant man is this just just broken sweaty comb over <laughs> you know armless man yeah. um who has now finally lived out his revenge fantasy and has like now nothing left in his life of any meaning right and also realizes that he has wasted essentially most of his adult life of something that is completely purposeless and meaningless. Yeah. Um, and like the utter despair that fills him and, and everyone else um, is, it was like astounding to me. <laughs> Having seen plenty of other Hindi films, you know, that come mm-hmm. much later, yeah. like, like people get together, maybe somebody dies, but it's happy. It's happy yeah. And even in like, uh, you know, Western films that are precursors, like, you know, the, 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 the guy runs off into the sunset. He gets revenge, and it's good. We put mm-hmm. that bad guy in the ground, and mm-hmm. we take a swig of whiskey and charge off, and it's good. Yeah. And I mean, and to wait three hours for this triumphant <laughs> moment and have it just be, like, the utter despair of this character was just, like, I mean, remarkable. Yeah. I mean, and I know there are other stories that have, like, you know, like an empty revenge, but mm-hmm. it's also part of the story is, like, you don't, nobody, re- I mean, there are little hints you know, along the way that the ending might not be satisfying. Yeah. But you don't, like, there's not a whole lot of deep foreshadowing that, like, the revenge plot is is utterly empty. You know, right, there's other films right. that people were like, you know, kid, if you kill him, then you won't have anything left. Right, right. You know, or like... It's not going to satisfy. You know, like, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like bloodlust, whatever, yeah. Yeah, you know, and there's, there's little indications of that, but yeah. not... Um, so the weight of that was just, like, you know, reading the... Watching it for the first time, and watching it, you know, five or six times since... Um, I just like again like no there isn't another story that yeah. we, you know that, that has that same kind of that leaves me with that same kind of feeling. Right. One you, of them. You, oh, god. You may not be able to answer this, <laughs> but uh, this is a highly successful film, right? Oh yeah, In I India? mean absolutely yeah. 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 So why do you think uh, that sort of unorthodox ending, unsatisfying? was still popular. I mean, is it the well, elements I mean, of the rest of the film that people still went with it? Or is there, is there something in the culture that was like... Oh, well, so I mean, well, I mean, what I, I mean it's, it's an interesting question because I know that the original, like, I know some of the story of the film and it was originally mm-hmm. done. Um, I think it's the National, it's not the National Film Board or the Indian Film Board looked at it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was sort of like a, 
you know, making sure films are okay place. And they're yeah. like, you cannot show this. <laughs> and they made them re-sh- or like recut the ending Re-cut of the film. Right. Yeah. So the, the talker gets stopped by the police before he has his final showdown. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and like I think the heroic end shot of that version, which I've only seen once, yeah. is like the police taking Gumber Singh away or something yeah, like yeah. that, which is an absolutely different film. <laughs> right. Um, and I mean, and I, I, that's a critical response question, which I don't have the answer to. But okay. I do know that, like, like in my anecdotal story, there are plenty of people who I know, Indians I know, who love the film that mm-hmm. are like, you have to watch the, like, the, you said you're like, the director's cut. Okay. Like, you have to watch. To that this is the version yeah. that is the real film. Yeah. We, which captures this, you know, I, again, like, one of the things that I love about Indian films, and I think what we, I would love about Moulin Rouge is, like, mm-hmm. you're rip-roaring along, having a great time, singing a song, and then all of a sudden, like, you know, a, a moment of super intensity um, not out of the blue, but mm-hmm. more like the tightening of a string or a band. You know, yeah. you just your heart's just in a squeeze, and you're like, "Oh wow!" Yeah. Like I just really have that. Oh, that's really unfortunate that that just happened. Yeah. So like, so the length of the film and the pace mm-hmm. that it takes to get there, um, mm-hmm. you know, contributes I think to this really big feeling. It's the yeah. same. I mean, I know I often talk to you about this film, the series of films by Japanese film director. Uh, the Human Condition. Yes. Which it's, I it's like it's three films. It's like six finish. hours long. Yes. Um, and it's, you know, like the, there's a big sort of climactic end to that. It's a, I don't know if you'll ever watch it, dear <laughs> um, uh, listeners, um, but it's a, a great series of films about, um, uh, you know, conflict between uh, China and Japan. It's a wonderful and, character. Uh, uh, the Human Condition? Yeah, in The Human Condition. No. Um, uh, Kaji-san, sorry, I'm being obscure. Um, <laughs> and I, anyway, the main character in The Human Condition is a guy named Kaji-san who's fabulous, but there's yeah. this huge, ironic thing that happens at the end that you have to like you have to spend six hours mm-hmm. with Kaji-san and yeah. see what he goes through to have that. the weight of this thing happen at the end which is this, sort of one of the reasons why I like Sholei for that same reason mm-hmm. um, do you um, so I've heard that in Bollywood films we there's there's a di- the cultural difference is that in America at least maybe it's also the way that we've just been um conditioned to think because of how our films have developed but like there's this big contrast and you know there can be these really serious moments people get their arms cut off or yeah people are killed and then they have this joyous dance scene and in america we think those things do not go together like this does not make sense yeah so like but in their culture it does well, I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in this by any means. Yeah. Um, but it's more for me. It's, it's, it's like a film idiom. I, mm-hmm. I don't know that it's like a cultural thing about India. Yeah. But it, it, it's a developed and acceptable film idiom. Right. In that, like, you know, you, it's, it's a, a way in which people it, it provides um, emotion and mm-hmm. story advancement in a way that people understand. Yeah. So that's like my Moulin Rouge um, Indian film to Sholay. Yeah. Um, because I, I mean, you know, probably, you know, those who are listening, if you know, if you've like journeyed into like another country or languages cinema, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you're often surprised that there's like so much awesomeness there. Yeah. I mean, I don't, it's a fairly uneducated way of saying that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, like you mentioned Wong Kar Wai earlier, you know, like my mind was blown. Right. You know, like seeing things like Days of Being Young or Chunking Express, you mm-hmm. know, like. Yeah. multiple protagonists like <laughs> I've always wanted to, I didn't know people actually made actually those things did this, yeah. you know and you know and like all the deep quasi surrealism of some mm-hmm. of that you know like mm-hmm. um, it's fascinating yeah. um, um, but so uh, what I wanted to uh, whenever I 
about Indian film. If you are more yes. in, interested in learning more about Indian film, <laughs> tell um, us more. Um, one of the films that I, when I would teach Indian film in, in even in high school or in uh, you know college courses, mm-hmm. I would always uh, we would always start with the film called Lagan. Yes, um, it was sort of crafted. A bunch of the famous filmmakers and production folks got together and sort of tried to make a film to win the best foreign film category <laughs> um, in the United States. Uh, you know, for the, the big awards we give here. Yeah, um, and it's uh, it is a and it also it serves as like a. a, a uh, a Bollywood film for people that don't know anything about India mm-hmm. or the genre. Okay. Um, and it also has like some of the best music they've done in films, some of the best dancing, some mm-hmm. of the best acting. It has like, you know, it's like a jam-packed star-studded cast of right. things. And you get you get the cast system and, you know, and you get Paul <laughs> Blackthorne as the horrible British person and you get, you know, you know like you get this whole love triangle, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. Colonialism, taxes, rip-roaring fun. I need to see this. Cricket. Cricket, uh, cricket yeah. is like the you know, central thing, um, you know. It's just it's like a, it's like a, an absolutely great first film um, if you're interested in it all. Introduction, and, yeah, yeah. Um, and it also you know because of the way the film is, it gives you like a template um, again to you know introduces you to this particular idiom of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot more um, it's a lot easier to go and understand sort of other stories. You know, yeah. if you wanted to venture into other you know Bollywood or other you know Indian language films. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Anything else about that that you want to mention? It's funny. I don't actually. Okay. That's good. Because um, we're both running a little long. Yeah, we're we're yeah. trying to be more concise. Yeah. We uh, this feedback we got from our listeners to be more concise. <laughs> um. No, I think that's good. I uh, I hope um. I think this worked well. This kind of personal journey. Oh yeah, the yeah, film. yeah. And hopefully, you listeners out there can go check out some of these films. Yeah. Um. I think we both tried to include some things that people had definitely seen and maybe not seen. Yeah. So kind of mix it up there. Uh, should we move on to the next Yeah, segment? next segment. So we're going to talk about what we've been watching with our kids. Yeah. Um, been watching some good stuff. Uh, I feel like there's been a lot. Um, yeah. At least what I've been watching personally too. But uh, with my kids, I did want to mention that closer to the holidays, after the holidays... I did finally catch up with uh, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Oh, yeah. Um, with my son. Uh-huh. Uh, my oldest one. And uh, was a little bit scary for a almost eight-year-old, but um, was unexpected. It's but scary. I have heard some kind of negative things, more so, like split on what people think of this compared to the other Harry Potter films. Yeah. Which... I, I personally really enjoyed and thought that they um, just really kept the quality or got better as the series went on of the original Harry Potter films. Yeah. So I will acknowledge this one doesn't quite have the story to, the big story to draw you in right. and the strong characters in the same way. But I couldn't resist sort of the world building that was happening. Um, yeah, this one yeah. takes place in America. Yeah. So we get to kind of see the American side of... Um, the magic, magic world yeah and uh just like really kind of fun characters unique things that we get to see um so i mean and just the filmmaking skill i think as far as like production design yeah. and sound design and everything was just really great we were talking about so how like tangible things yeah. feel and stuff so and this is this is a uh sort of extreme 
view of I think New York in the yeah. 1930s or so, uh-huh. 1920s, 1930s. But still, it was just fun to see like a big budget applied to kind of entering that world again and um, seeing yeah. the fun aspects of it. Uh, I think my son liked it for the most part. The the kind of dark side of it, the scary part was pretty like was not really a monster per se. So I think it was almost like coming from a person like emotionally and stuff that was kind of scary yeah and also i think part of it was just like they use sound to create that sort of fear and scariness then it was just like overwhelming i mean my son said just like i kind of had trouble like following everything when there was like action like keeping track because and so i think that was a good criticism like it's just everything flying around and like yeah yeah this bombardment of sound that's supposed to like (laughs) a makeup for maybe actually being scary or something. Yeah. So I think that was more of it. It was just kind of overwhelming for him. Um, but I, I had a great time, um, in that film. Uh, I know, um, that's the main one I want to mention. Right, so we, we, ahead. uh, I know you started watching Voltron. Yeah. The, the new Voltron. The new Voltron. Legendary defense On Netflix yeah. series. Um, it's fabulous. Yeah. We had watched it when it first came out with both of my boys and we really enjoyed it and now we're re-watching it yeah. uh, to get ready to watch the second season again yeah. so we can catch up but yeah what, do, any, you, what do you guys think viewing audience listening audience if you have not watched Voltron Legendary Defender yeah <laughs> you should watch it yeah. as an adult as a parent with boys yeah, or I girls aged like sure. 3 to 400 mm-hmm. um, it's fabulous I yeah. mean Voltron is good mm-hmm. I like the original Voltron mm-hmm. um, they uh they have a star-studded voice cast. They have Stephen, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Wynn, um, who plays Glenn on The Walking Dead. Uh, Norman Reedus shows up for a little bit. Um, you have uh, Reese Darby, who's uh, you know famous New Zealand actor, who's mm. hilarious and serious <laughs> and good in there. Um, and there's just some like, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't really recognize any of the um, production, direction, writing staff. But I mean, like, it's fabulously well-written for a show or a kid's show. Yeah. There's um, uh, there's some people I know behind the um, Last Airbender animated okay. series and the, more so maybe the uh, the follow-up with the female lead. Okay. Which is, the name is um, not coming to me right now. Sorry. Of that show. But, uh, which I think are also fairly good quality. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like, this Voltron, like, it's tight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, the story is extremely economical without being too fast. Right. Um, you have, like, both, like, you know, like conflict without a lot of super violence. Mm-hmm. And like, you got your anime, you got your stuff. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, the animation look, quality is really good. Yeah. I think. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, my eye says that like a, a large portion of it is like hand done rotoscoping, hmm. um, or hand. I mean, not rotoscoping, but like a lot of it is like hand done animation. I mean, there's oh. there's some stuff you can see which is like the lions are clearly CGI. Right. Most of the ships are. Mm-hmm. Some of the like camera motion through space is CGI. Yeah. It blends pretty well though. Yeah, you I know, think, I mean, yeah. it's it's good, and yeah. but a, a lot of it. I mean, maybe it's a program that they use or, mm-hmm. or an environment, but it looks, it has that same, like, ethereal sort of, like, um, you know, early anime Don Bluth quality where, like, <laughs> you know, where, like, yeah, the, yeah. the thing about CGI is, like, 
if somebody gets angry and they punch their fist at you, it doesn't change shape. Right. It moves closer to you. Right. Um, but this has a really expressive quality mm-hmm. to it. People's face, you know, I mean, it is yeah, a, it's yeah, a Japanese yeah. palette. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, people emotions are reflected in sort of cartoonish ways. Sometimes. Yeah. The action is fabulous. I mean, the story is really interesting. You get a lot of stuff through flashbacks. There's some interesting reveals. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's we're probably in thinking episode, I think I just watched episode five today of the first season. Okay. It's dense, and, and I'm, yeah. I just want to watch it right now. Like, I'd rather, right, I know. I mean, this is totally fun, but... Yeah. Um, and I was just really impressed. I mean, I loved the original Voltron as a kid, but, like, I haven't rewatched it since, so I have no idea if that holds up. Yeah. But they do, Eli, in episode, I think it's episode five, they do have... Um, a reference to uh, the dinotherms and the, whatever the mega thrusters <laughs> are, which, listen for that which it's yeah. when they're launching the castle. Oh, okay. Because it's what they say in the original. Vol- I mean, for I don't know Uber, you Uber nerds out there, yeah. that's what they say when they form Voltron. Oh, okay. Um, there's like you know interlocks, and then you know the dinotherms are connected, and yeah. you know mega thrusters are go. I know my boys were, were always like, there's kind of a middle section where it slows down slightly. I think still good storytelling, yeah. but like yeah, for yeah. the kids, they were like, when are they gonna form Voltron again? Yeah, which I think it was purposely building back up to it by the end. But, oh yeah, I yeah. mean they have a they have a really good <laughs> sense. I mean because you know the old one eventually all of them it's like oh like you know they send some really crazy thing in a giant's like coffin that gets really big magic. <laughs> and the Voltron fights it yeah. gets weak and then Voltron they form Voltron pulls out the sword and kills it mm-hmm. um, which was a formula which I think with war- which worked as a kid yeah. um, but this is not like that I mean yeah. every episode every conflict is new and interesting there's a mm-hmm. lot of they have like cool energy shields on their like yeah. suits and jet packs and is you know it's an interesting world with interesting characters it's just fabulous mm-hmm. I, I, that's all I can say about it yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting sort of hybrid of things that started with The Last Airbender, where it's kind of this American-made show, yeah. but integrating some anime aspects to yeah. it. And I am I don't know who the actual animators are, so yeah. it may actually be kind of a, a blend of things. But um, I think it's bringing these great qualities of anime that should be more popular in yeah. America. Um, a little bit more serious, but fun yeah. and good quality animation. I mean, we do... I think we mostly don't get anything in America that's very big besides like Disney and that type yeah, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, kids very focused. I mean, on I do have to say for yeah. the, for those of you that have any interest in anime or interesting stories in general, um, uh, you can you should watch uh, Full Metal Alchemist. Hmm. Um, it's uh, I, there's a lot that I can say about it, but there's um, there's two that are out there. There's Full Metal Alchemist, which is like it it's based on a graphic novel. Um, it's good yeah um but it kind of veers off it what well, kind of it <laughs> goes full george lucas at the end um which d- uh diverges very much from the original graphic novel which has a tight story mm-hmm. um and they they remade it or made it again or in whatever japanese word <laughs> describes yeah. it um as a, a full metal alchemist brotherhood mm-hmm. which is a some of it's on netflix some of it's on amazon prime mm. Um, and it stays much truer to the uh, graphic novel. Yeah. So I would recommend those that are interested um, watch Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood. It is an absolutely fabulous story. <laughs> it has like a, you know, it's weird and like mm-hmm. I, so I, uh, Netflix kept saying, you should watch this. And I'm like, I want to watch some stupid show about a little kid in a suit of armor. <laughs> um, but it's fabulous. It's yeah. I mean, like they, it's, it's, I've not it's it. one of the more interesting worlds that I've ever mm-hmm. seen, which includes like, alchemy which is like science magic yeah um you know like and like the concept, yeah. you know the, there's you know like the you know and the, the heart of the story is like these these two 
little brothers uh, whose mother dies and they mm-hmm. try to use like forbidden alchemy to bring her back and go horribly wrong one of them loses his arm <laughs> the other one loses his entire body yeah um, his brother you know like, uses magic to save him and put him in this suit of armor that's sitting <laughs> in their house and it, you know and then they go through this i just fabulous rollicking romp if you yeah. if you have interest at all and haven't watched it you yeah. will not be disappointed yeah but i i totally agree that uh with voltron that when we first watched it it was definitely me being like you know, normally, like, we watch an episode of something, maybe, and I'll be like, no, no more TV time. Like, yeah. your brains are going to melt. Yeah. But, like, with that, they were like, come watch it. And I was like, as much as... Yeah, the 10, what, 22 minutes? As much yeah. as your mom will let us yeah. we'll keep watching. Um, yeah. So, um, that's good. Anything yeah. else on that? Oh, I mean, not on Voltron. It's great. Oh, yeah. I don't know. What you been watching with your kids? Uh, uh, well, I mean... Oh, we, oh, so You don't have to. I just... Um, I don't. Because okay. I want to move on to the next Let's segment. move on to the next one. Um, what have you been watching on a streaming service? Yeah, or games you've been playing, whatever. Yeah. Uh, I've been watching a lot. What's I, I Yeah. <laughs> I'm way, way behind on... I should probably talk about that. Uh, way behind on the Westworld thing. But we recently um, got HBO uh, subscription back. So we were catching up, my wife and I, on Westworld. And, man, we, like, went in deep on this. So, like, I haven't seen her as, like, into a show as this for quite a while. Yeah. And um, it helped that we listened to a podcast um, that was connected to it. But we, probably everybody else has probably seen it out there listening, but, like, that's interested. Um but I don't think we both realized that there was going to be an aspect that kind of had, like, twists to it and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, I mean, I knew it dealt with, like, artificial intelligence and things like that. But based on the original film, I thought it was going to be much more of, like, the robots or androids or whatever go crazy and run amok in the park or whatever. Um, but it's it's much more interesting than that. Yeah. So I think we're both still processing it. And in the end, I think it was not quite... I don't know how to describe it. I mean, didn't really let us down, but, like, hoped it kind of did something different. But, like, still I'm pretty blown away on the production quality, the acting. Anthony Hopkins does a great job in it, um, some of the other actors. So I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll have to get, because you guys haven't seen it, but maybe we'll we'll have to get some experts on. um, Because it, I mean, we could talk a long time about it. Um but also just things I like about bringing out what it means to be human and yeah, what responsibility do we have to other living beings or possibly, what is it? Yeah. Like what makes us um, living and... Uh, Those are the hard questions know. of modernity. I mean, that's... Yeah, yeah. That's the thing you got to stare down. Yeah. Um, and also just fun play on uh, uh, the Western genre yeah. and lots of meta-ness so yeah um so that's uh that's been really good um i'm also just finishing uh the night of so uh-huh. i'm doing all my hbo catch-up yeah um but this is a great sort of like noirish but a little bit more realistic mm-hmm. style story it's, it's kind of a one-off um i believe it's just going to be like a mini series yeah um but really fascinating also about sort of a young Muslim kid that grows up in America but um, gets uh, blamed for this murder and you don't know if he's guilty. Uh, also interesting for all you 
podcast fans out there, obviously, because you're listening to a podcast. But uh, similar to kind of the serial idea, um, if you've listened to the first season of serial, it's kind of a similar exploration. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, with all everything happening in the news, it's also just interesting. It's it's not really focused on kind of the uh, cultural or uh, religious aspects of who these people are, but it's it's all in the mix, handled really yeah. nicely. Um, but such great actors, and John Turturro mm. um, is in it. Riz Ahmed, who uh, was Bodhi in Rogue One, oh, is yeah. kind of the kid. Um, gives a really uh, nice emotional nuance per performance um so yeah those are two big shows i could probably talk about other movies i've been catching up on but i'll kind of save some of them. i've been trying to just catch up on the yeah, year. Yeah, the yeah. films that you were supposed to see this year that i just couldn't ever make it to the theater to see yeah so as they're becoming available at home i've been trying to catch those yeah we'll kind of maybe do that as more of a wrap-up of yeah. Show um. And, How about you? Uh, so uh, let's see. Two. Uh, there's two things I think I want to mention. Um. Uh. One is uh, this the new series of unfortunate events show. Yes. That produced by Neil Patrick Harris, available on the and Netflix. Netflix. Yeah. Um. It is. Uh. There's. It's great. I mean, like, <laughs> I, I don't know what else to say. Um. Off the bat, to yeah. say that. Um. But like Patrick Warburton, who voiced the Tick, plays the the role of Lemony Snicket, who's this mm. sort of reluctant uh, investigator, who's our like interlocutor in, <laughs> into the world of the unfortunate events of the Baudelaire children. Yeah, and he often, you know, he's often coming. You know, he's just I can't imitate him. <laughs> I may try, you know. Yeah. But you know, and, you know, because he's him. he's this. And the, the show is really playful in the way that he sort of steps into the... He's, you know, he's not there because he's talking to us from the future of writing the books about these kids. Mm-hmm. But he'll step in and be like, you know, if if that was only the only thing that happened on the beach today with the Baudelaire's, I could have, you know, slept at night. But unfortunately, <laughs> the, you know, unfortunate events continued there. Yeah. Um, and there's, you know, there's a character of the guy at the bank who's like always coughing. Um, <laughs> and, you know, th- there's a... it, it It's... It manages some level of like caricature and absurdity mm-hmm. that is really enjoyable okay. um, to watch. Yeah, um, and it doesn't it doesn't betray the like weight of the emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, Neil Patrick Harris plays Count Olaf, who is yeah. this sort of evil scheming person who's a bad actor and plays a bad actor. <laughs> Um, trying to get the um, the money out of these kids, they inherited a great fortune. So you're fortune. saying Neil Patrick Harris is a bad actor in general? No, 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 Neil, no, no. I, I mean, I understand the character. Do you, is. I yeah, so, understand. No, I mean, so like, sorry, um, Neil Patrick Harris is a fabulous actor, <laughs> and so he plays an actor. He plays Count Olaf, right, right. who is an actor, who is, an actor. Yeah, who yeah. is a bad actor. Yeah. So, so they always like, recognize him. Yeah, like, and, I mean, he's yeah, yeah. he's and Neil Patrick Harris is effectively playing a very bad actor, mm-hmm. um, with like an entourage of crazy people. Better than the Jim Carrey version. Oh, I, can, I mean, it's it's they're not even comparable. I mean, okay. the Jim. I mean, Jim Carrey is great. Yeah, I think Liar Liar is fabulous. Just I think the Mask is great. Version of Truman Show. Star, yeah. Um, but like that, that's I mean, that that version with Jim Carrey. I know mm-hmm. you're prompting. We felt like. Like a like a Hollywood adaptation of a, mm. a, of a series of books that had a very unique and darkly Victorian f- like yeah. flair to them uh-huh. um, that this remake absolutely captures. Hmm. I mean, from the very beginning, I mean, it's a story about Lemony Snicket who writes the books and is also is like 
an investigator telling the strange tale of these children. Um, you know, which is you know, it, it's it's dark, but it's right. also funny and absurd, but also still serious. Like mm-hmm. they, you know, there's a point in this version where like uh, Count Olaf hits. Um, one of the kids across the face, you know, mm-hmm. and it's like a big deal. Yeah. And the characters talk about it and it mm. feels like a big deal. Yeah. And it has that, you know, like he's cool to them and like threatens to kill the baby at various points. Mm. Um, and that's it. Like it still has the weight that's of realism way, yeah. because it, 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 we enter into this Victorian darkness mm-hmm. that we are ushered into by Patrick Warburton's dulcet <laughs> tones. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, Joan Cusack plays this mm. bumbling judge character across yeah. the way. She's the, great. She's great. Yeah. Um, the story is different um, in the in this. They, they have they have yeah. license with the story from mm-hmm. the books, but it um, it makes it so much more enjoyable. Yeah. Um, in, in a sense, it makes it exciting for me. I'm like, oh, I read the books, but like, what are you guys gonna do here? Yeah. Um, and uh, I just felt. I, I mean, this is like a larger comment, but I, I feel like there's there's a a great thing going on with these like you know Netflix and Amazon Prime original series mm-hmm. that that people get to to make things that have a really unique style and feel yeah. to them because um, I mean I'm sure there were gatekeepers that 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 they had to pass through to make this mm-hmm. but it doesn't feel like anything else I mean you right. know it 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 is has got some odd edges and and a really different style, I keep saying these words, yeah. um, that I like. And that is absolutely key to what the books are right. yeah. and what and how that story flows. Yeah. Um, Will Arnett plays a father in there. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a lot of fun stuff. Yeah, I was um, going to say, I mean, isn't it great that, like, Netflix is letting these people kind of do things differently? Like, yeah. giving them the freedom to make things dark. Yeah, 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 yeah. Serious or whatever, a little bit well, and, edgier. You know, yeah, and, and I yeah. mean, it's like if, I feel like it's, if, it's one of those things, like if, um, if somebody would have pitched this ten years ago with you know with with a traditional distribution platform, mm-hmm. they would have been like, e- no, yeah, yeah, you know, like maybe like a direct to DVD thing, right, right. You know, I mean, yeah. just I mean, it has that this this production. I mean, it's also Neil Patrick Harris thing. It has this like the the rawness and awesomeness of like Doctor Horrible sing along blog mm. um, that like I just love. You know, mm-hmm. I mean. Uh, and it came about because of the writer's strike and, right. you know, problems with distribution <laughs> platforms and all that other stuff. Just did, um, yeah. And so it's just, I mean, it's it's exciting for me to see that explored. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have to tell our, you know, our loyal listeners that I finished Luke Cage yeah. um, all the way through. Which you loved uh, it was, so much. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if I talked about it last time, but um, Rosario Dawson finally gets on the show. Mm. She's great. Yeah. Uh, she, she like is. makes fun of how corny Luke Cage is, which is the exact counterpoint that he needs. <laughs> and the two of them make the show work. Okay. Um, there's still like, um, uh, you know, the, the the brother and sister that are sort of the heart of the evil empire. Mm-hmm. I, man, s- the person writing them is doing a good job. I think mm-hmm. yeah. the the acting is just horrible. I mean, I think they're <laughs> both good actors. One of them, I yeah. can't pronounce his name. It's like Mara Heschel Ali. Um, he's know. in Moonlight. Okay. Um, he's in Hidden Figures. Okay. Um, he's a striking figure, and mm-hmm. it seems like he has a great heart and awesome chops, and yeah. just like massive skill. And it's just utterly squandered mm-hmm. in Luke Cage. In show, yeah. You know, and I don't know if it's the writing or the directing, but mm-hmm. like, 
it's all they can do to to save that from getting to end. I mean, like okay. first episode, like what I love is like a bunch of black dudes sitting around in a barbershop talking about like black literature. Yeah, you know, like some of it I get, some of I some of it I don't. You got the guys playing chess, just fabulous setup. Yeah, and then we just down a rabbit hole, fight, violence, crap, <laughs> garbage stuff. Um, and then the last episode, like they get, it gets back, like you know, Luke hmm. Cage is being taken away, and the guys, you know, he's talking to the people in the like ambulance or whatever the jail thing about, yeah. you know, and they're talking about black literature and like the deeper significance of this, you know. And at some point in the show, someone says like, you know, I just feel like it's really meaningful, like a bulletproof black man in a hoodie. I'm like, that is so interesting. <laughs> Can we talk more about it than like one line? Mm. Um, yeah. And I yeah. So I mean, I don't know. I. I was just reading a friend of mine on Facebook who's a film professor, my friend Colin Burnett, who I think he really liked um, uh, Luke Cage, which is... I hear generally pretty great uh, things about it, yeah. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to talk too much about it, um, mm-hmm. uh, but for me, like, it, it comes down to the performances and the acting. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's, like, this really, like, supposedly, like, I assume dramatic moment when Pops dies and, like, okay. both Luke Cage and... Um, uh, Cornell Stokes, sort of like the good and bad guy, sort of talk at his funeral. The speeches are horrible. They're horribly delivered. Yeah. Um, like, you know, like if the audience wasn't like, if the audience didn't, if it didn't say in the script, audience says amen here, yeah. nobody would have responded. <laughs> like, it just like utterly flat without emotion. Yeah. Um, which is not, I think, what they're going for. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and and so like until you get the interplay between Rosario Dawson and the guy who plays Luke Cage, Luke Cage doesn't come alive. Yeah, you know, and until you know, and so like the, there are relationships between characters that just doesn't doesn't happen in the show. Like mm-hmm. I- interactions happen. Yeah, but none of it really, really comes alive. Yeah. And I mean, the character of Cornell Stokes is 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 in really interesting. Hmm. I mean, he's this this crime boss, but he's also, you know, like has a failed life as a musician and gets mm. you know, thrust into this life as a killer. He doesn't want to be. All that on face seems really interesting. Right. But the way it shows up on the screen, I could care less because um, the, you know, it's, it's maybe because they're phoning it in or I don't know. The, yeah. I, I don't know what to pinpoint it on, yeah. either the acting or the writing or something, but it, right. you know. Hmm. On on the you know in principle it seems like a lot of real Should cool things yeah. but when I actually watch it it's like oh like I see what you're going for here I it's totally bogus <laughs> you know like or like the delivery of it or the presentation of it or the actual the actualization of it doesn't work yeah but the good ideas right um those two things I also um mentioned uh for all you video game game fans out there uh, I started playing through Dishonored I know Dishonored two recently came out. Um, and my friend Tim, who we may we'll have on the show sometime, uh, big video gamer, um, mm-hmm. uh, who introduced me to like Bioshock Infinite and um, The Binding of Isaac and some of the greats of our age. Um, the thing I wanted to say about Dishonored is um, two things. One, um, it, it's one of the best uh, sort of stealth games I've ever played. Okay. In that, like your initial powers are like you can see, but you know behind walls and you can like teleport. And like the, it's not a, it is a first person shooter game. Mm-hmm. But, like, you can't really stand up in combat versus, like, two guys. Like, you, you have to succeed by sneaking around. And there's a whole okay. lot of waiting. It takes a while to, to figure out how the game works. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, you know, once you get it going, uh, I think it works really well in a way yeah. that other games don't. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, like, you know, and there's so many different ways to play the game. You can sneak. You can use different skills. So that it's not like there's only mm-hmm. one way to beat a certain thing. Right. So I really like that. The second thing I like about it 
Um, just like in Bioshock Infinite, the world of Columbia in Bioshock Infinite is just fabulous, possibly mm-hmm. or arguably one of the most interesting game universes ever. Yeah. Um, it, it, it starts to deal with racing a little bit that I think like um, the new Mafia game does, which I haven't played, but here it does. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just... You know, like clearly the work of a whole bunch of really interesting people. Yeah. Um, the world of uh, Dunwall, which is the city on a river that you see in um, Dishonored, Dishonored, is also really interesting. Hmm. Um, it also visually seems to me, I, mean, I don't know, but it seems to me based on uh, Benares, the city in India, okay. um, uh, you know, along the Ganges River, uh, it looks like it. It has the mist of it. It has like the, you know, the sort of the two cities that sort of fade into the river together. Everything sort of takes place on a river with riverboats. Mm-hmm. There's this vague, like, colonial presence there. Yeah. It's also really interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a world that takes place, you know, kind of at a fictional turn of the century. There's electricity and gunpowder, yeah. um, but not like complicated electricity, like not computers or anything. But there are mm-hmm. like wiring, you know, there are like technological yeah. devices of like Tesla coil kind of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just been a real joy to sort of move through that world where, you know, you know, and, and there's a lot of times when you're going to and from missions that you go through these really interesting visual spaces yeah that you, you know you don't need to interact with them at all but it's like a wonderful cinematic presentation of stuff um with a really visually thought out world there's mm-hmm. a lot of attention paid to like the 3d space of it um and it's just a joy to play yeah um i've you know i've actually worked my way through this the original dishonor then play the way through the second one um and i'm excited about that yeah yeah and also my final shout out is um for the you know the i don't know how to say it, for the uber nerds out there um uh pavonis Productions or studios, um, which was previously Long War Studios, released Long War Two just about a couple days ago, um, which is their comprehensive modification of XCOM Two. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I started playing it. Uh, you know, the, yeah. they already came out with the one point one. There's a whole lot of bug fixes. Yeah. Um, I haven't talked about it before on the show, but uh, the XCOM series is one of my favorites. Um, the XCOM remake I love. XCOM mm-hmm. Two is almost like a perfection of genre kind of thing for me. Yeah. Um, I, I didn't make it through the original Long War mod because it was like too long. It's like about mm-hmm. 150 hours of playtime. I got yeah. to about 80 and was like, ah, it's too much. Um, so I'm really excited to see all the stuff that they did with uh, Long War 2. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, I'm maybe like 10 hours into it. Um, it's good. Nice. Um, and they, there are some pretty serious and good changes that they, they make to it. Right. That, um, you know, Of course, they're not changing the original story, but there's a lot of gameplay and tactical stuff that they add. Mm-hmm. Characteristic of what they do... Um, that is good. I mean, the, the like bigger piece for it for me sometimes is like um, XCOM 2 is designed with the Steam Workshop model built into it. Yeah. Um, so that is, I mean, like in the community, so it's designed for modification from the very, very beginning. Yeah. It's really easy to do. There's a whole lot of stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it turns out that like uh, a bunch of dedicated people devoted towards a single goal or a single mod are turning out better content. Yeah. Uh, you know, and in the marketplace of ideas, um, there is this almost like this. The uh, I mean, I'm sure other people talk about it, like a secondary yeah. market mm-hmm. of sort of like the non-professional or semi-professional programmers yeah. that bring a lot of style and commitment to the heart of the game and um, you know chops at mm-hmm. either programming or designing yeah. that are making great content. Um, you know, and I, I see that as kind of being parallel as a distribution to like the stuff that's going on with Netflix. Mm. It's a little different, you know. Like you know, yeah. no one's paying like Pavonis to, to do this. Do yeah. Um, but they're eventually going to be marketing their own stuff, and I imagine you know there it there's going to be yeah. a, a a much more robust uh, third party DLC for a lot of stuff. Because mm-hmm. um, you know, like the 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 open distribution market um, uh, or marketplace for that stuff is exciting, and and, and for I mean for like. 
for the for the nerds of us that were like playing Darklands and Command and Conquer in the early yeah. '90s in our basements, you know, like with dial-up internet with our friends, um, we live in a grand and noble age um, when things like Steam um, and this kind of uh, customizable content is available. Yeah, and it's exciting. Cool, great. Um, one thing I wanted to mention is for our, you know, I don't know, numerous. Thousands, thousands of listeners, Ten, tens. Let us know if you like this format today of us kind of doing a personal sort of experience of the film, or we should talk more generally. Um, we're gonna mix it up, anyways. Um, we have some interviews coming up as well for you yeah. guys, but uh, yeah, let us know. Um, great, thanks for listening today. Yeah, and thanks for listening. Yeah, we'll uh, talk to you next time.